they do a Google search on noise control or acoustics or something, and they come up with a firm that does do a product that's in that market, but not, might not be the right product for what they need. And so that's where I think oftentimes the value of a consultant like us is to differentiate between this is what you need and this is what is not going to help you much. This is Let's the Real roll. Estate Addicts Podcast. Try again. Sorry. This is the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. Hold pod. on. Give it a one <laughs> second delay. Ready? This is the Real Estate... <laughs> this is the Real Estate Addicts Podcast with your hosts, Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Ray Herto, HRV Homes. Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. And joining us today is... Jeff Fullerton of Intertech. Welcome. Thank you. So much of what you guys do, and one of the reasons I'm really excited to have you join us is that I just think that people's the popular imagination and the things that you think are true. There's a lot of things that are just might not make logical sense immediately. You know, for example, uh, units on upper floors are much quieter than a unit at, at street level. Depends if, you, if there's a penthouse mechanical system. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like sound can reverberate or, uh, yeah, sound travel. If you live below something like a few stories above or above a gym, excuse me, that you're, you're isolated from the sound because you're above it. Yeah. Shared party walls, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, the penthouse example is a great place to start because you really do get the benefit of not having anybody over you. Mm -hmm. You typically are going to have all the mechanical systems above you. Mm -hmm. And so you trade off the issue of potentially having kids, dogs, um, any other activity, jumping up and down on your ceiling versus a potential 24-hour cycle of mechanical systems that's going to change over, uh, vary, and affect you in other ways. So yeah, it's. I think people do find the penthouse is where they want to be, and you get the views and a lot of other great things, um, but you do have to look for what you're buying. And yeah. uh, that's a key with any place you buy. It, it is so disappointing when we get called after someone's just bought a place and they visited during the day. Well, at night, you really start to get a better impression of what the traffic situation is or what the neighborhood maybe is much more busy at night. And it's those things that you don't find out until you're there 24 hours. Mm. So yeah, it's it's tough, I think, for people to fully appreciate what a building has when they buy it. But it is so critical to keep your eyes open when you're going around a site and uh, considering a place that you're going to purchase. Well, I want to go back to that. But my biggest question for this episode is as a developer, you know, obviously what we can do to mitigate all those issues, potential issues. And if we do mitigate them and we meet or exceed the code, Mm -hmm. you know, because we, we always hear the nightmares about developers getting sued by owners uh, because of noise and things like that. You know, if we meet or exceed a code, can we still get in trouble? Can we still be sued? I assume you can be sued by about anything, but yeah. you know, how do you protect, how do we protect ourselves if we're trying to do, if we're doing the right thing and we're going above and beyond? I mean, I heard a lawsuit on a high-end condominium building because of wind whistling past the corner. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me. Yeah, there are lawyers out there to fight and yeah. fight. Mm-hmm. You want to fight. I would hope those types of cases aren't coming up out of unnecessary claims, mm-hmm. but um, I, I think we can touch upon exactly what you're discussing and ways in which you can present, we have done the due diligence, we have done the right design, we have executed the design during construction, and this is the standard of care that we were trying to meet. 
And if you've got a difference of opinion, you're welcome to that. But this is what we plan to develop. It's all about mitigating risk. Yeah. So yep. part of that diligence, we did a project that was in the flight path. It was in South Boston, yep. nice high-end condos. We worked with an acoustical engineering group and came out with a microphone and we set it there mm-hmm. for a day or two. Mm-hmm. And then we came back, picked it up, and it showed us just that. Like at two o'clock in the morning, this stops, or at four o'clock, this starts, and it was surprising. And we shaped our design to that. And quantifying it is so important because then you have a much better sense of once it's quantified, you can approach it very scientifically to say, here's how you could block that. Mm-hmm. The hard part is there's always the wild card of sound is subjective. Mm -hmm. And 99% of the people are what we design for. And there's always going to be 1% of people who unfortunately have a different perspective of sound. And that may factor into lawsuits that don't make sense Mm -hmm. from your perspective. But again, we're designing for a majority, not everybody. And I think that can sometimes be the challenge. But that quantification is so key at the very start. But then also as you go through the design phase and compare your designs to, you mentioned earlier, the idea of meeting code. There's actually some great documents out there that give developers a way in which to exceed code and give them some numbers to strive for. So that's a really helpful document that we can basically bring to the table and then compare the design to and have a good sense are we going above and beyond code? And uh, I'm sure at some point we'll touch upon this in more depth, but one of the things that Mark and I talked about when we were testing a recent project that he had developed was that we are designing buildings differently these days. We're doing such a great job keeping things out of buildings, air, water, and thermal issues. We're also keeping out noise. And by keeping out that noise, we're not letting the noise in and not having noise inside the residence means you're more sensitive to your neighbors. The industry has changed and the codes haven't. And so that's part of the reason why these guidelines can be really helpful. And again, we'll we'll get into that as we continue talking. But um, yeah, let's hit like a baseline. So there's exterior sounds that mm-hmm. we can try to mitigate. There's also interior sounds. Yep. And there's a code that is dictated for both. Well, it's interesting. So the general code used across the states is the International Building Code, and that really only addresses the interior sound transmission issues. And it's considered airborne sound transmission, which is that STC rating or sound Mm -hmm. transmission class. So like radios, conversational sound, televisions. Not not somebody tap dancing. Correct. (laughs) Correct. And not somebody tap dancing, not somebody with a blender on their kitchen counter that you can then hear the blender downstairs. Those sounds are structure-borne sounds or impact sounds. And impact sounds are measured by basically quantifying how much of that sound gets into the structure and then radiates to below. Or or above. I see. Well, that's the fun part. Once it gets into a structure, it can go any way it wants. Like like energy. Yeah. And a wire. And through the connections. Mm -hmm. And the connections we have are inherent in that we have to build the second floor supported off the first, and the third floor gets supported off the second. And so those structural connections are the paths through which vibrations can travel and then re-radiate its sound. The code really focuses more on the transmission of that sound downward Mm -hmm. through a floor ceiling. It's not, it's not entirely clear that it would pick up those other transmission paths horizontally, vertically. 
But we like to think that as we're consulting with our clients, that's an important thing to consider. And so here's one example. If you were developing a podium type construction where you've got a garage underneath, you might build a concrete floor Mm -hmm. for that separation of the garage from residences above. Well, most people might say it's a garage downstairs. Why do I have to worry about impact isolation to downstairs? Who's going to be bothered in the garage by me walking around on the second floor? Well, the issue is that concrete slab is continuous from residence to residence horizontally. And somebody tapping on their floor in one residence is going to hear the concrete Mm. impacts through the concrete slab to the other residence, even if you build a fantastic wall separating them because it's the concrete slab that's continuous. So even with those situations, we often consult with our developers to say, it really is a good thing to think about a very thin underlayment just to break that transmission path and make it less susceptible. I uh, unfortunately have spent a couple of days in uh, the hospital recently uh, with my son. It was amazing trying to sleep there. How many times we heard the sound of chairs in the room next door scraping on the floor Hmm. because the floor is not isolated from the concrete. And it's not that the wall dividing our rooms was bad. It's just the concrete slab is continuous. Mm -hmm. And the same thing can happen in a residence. So that that common slab that we're creating is fantastic for isolating the garage below, but it presents a potential concern for that horizontal transmission. Hmm. So in terms of ways to combat sound and, yep. and to break that continuous um, uninterrupted path for sound to travel, we talk about the word decoupling comes up a lot. Yep. So mass is one way, certainly mm-hmm. like concrete, but the other way is to break that path by decoupling. And can, can you sort of elaborate on that? Yeah. And so if you think about the fact that mass is sort of the brute force method, mm-hmm. it's it's the brick and brick is harder and heavier and harder to move than drywall. So mass is a great way to usually start the discussion. You're going to run into a situation where you can't build two foot thick concrete walls <laughs> between residences because it just doesn't make sense. Not from a financial perspective, not from a practical perspective. So you start to get into Okay, if we build it lighter, how can we do that in ways that still maintains the same performance? And usually that incorporates some sort of cavity. And in that cavity, you'll have insulation. And the insulation isn't really that great of a barrier. But what it does is once the sound goes through one side of the drywall of a wall, it gets into this cavity and it ricochets around and around and around until eventually it goes out the other side. If you put insulation in that cavity it doesn't ricochet. It actually gets absorbed. And so that's what the insulation is doing in the cavity, which is helpful. And so that's good. But what if we take the stud that is holding up the drywall on each side, and what if we make it a double stud? Well, now the stud on one side doesn't connect and allow the transmission through that structure-borne path that we were talking about to the other side. And so that's one form of decoupling. That by then, double, sorry, by double stud, you mean having a stud and then having a small gap between them correct. and then having another stud. Okay. Four staggering. Two, two yep. sole plates, yeah. an inch apart. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so the best. That, because then you're yes. not losing you don't a lot have of the width, footage. Right. If exactly. you don't have the width to do a double wall, then you can look at staggering the studs yeah. on a single sole plate. But, but you've got the single sole plate, which yeah. does present some transmission through. Mm-hmm. 
But you, you're hitting the right point in that um, sort of like the brute force math method, mm-hmm. mass method, we're going to run into a practical limit. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can't give up that extra six inches of space on the floor with that double stud and extra floor space because that actually is very valuable in many yeah. <laughs> residential <laughs> developments. So the decoupling may take the form of clips. And resilient clips are a great addition to the sort of toolbox of acoustical consultants. The tried and true, well, <laughs> not true, the historic means of decoupling had been a resilient channel. Gosh, there's so many cases where the resilient channel is a great idea, but the execution fails. The installation and, just gets screwed up. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, it's really hard to always make sure the contractor hasn't screwed through the channel when he's putting up the drywall and into the truss, joist, stud, <laughs> whatever's behind it. Yeah. And the problem is most of the time when we get called in about a construction that's failing, we pull it apart or it gets pulled apart and we get to see all these screw holes in the trusses and in the structure and it's, again, a very cost-effective way to do things. It just presents so much risk for failure. So that's the challenge to avoid is yeah. the intent doesn't get executed. I mean, these properly. guys are going a million miles an hour putting up the drywall. I mean, you, right. I mean, yeah, it works are. in a laboratory. It doesn't work always so well in the field. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And each one of those, you know, we call them short circuits. Every yep. time the screw goes through the drywall, through the resilient channel, which is sort of like you're strapping. It's to replace that mm-hmm. wood strapping. And then into the joist, into the structure above, it's sort of like an open window on a car, in a car. Yep. And you're just losing that much. Yeah. And so now that- you're spending extra time and extra labor as well, because to hang the channels works more time than the strapping. So, I mean, well, you're doing all this yeah. extra stuff. There's and- other, there is option C here. So I think actually yeah. hush frame is an interesting product. Yeah. And actually um, that's an example of another decoupled system and his system basically uses wood elements that has have been bonded together with silicone. So it's it's a really unique um, form of decoupling that uh, we haven't seen on the market. And uh, yeah, it's been fun to be able to test his product and see it perform very yeah. well in some cases. So I'll actually give them a plug. They're manufactured locally. This is a product where it's so simple. And I just like wish that I thought of it 10 years ago. <laughs> it's like, wow, that, that makes all the sense in the world. It's literally two little blocks mm-hmm. of wood with a dense silicone between them. And you screw one piece of wood to the structure above and you screw the strapping or the drywall to the other piece of wood. And in between that energy is broken by that dense silicone. And it really does a wonderful job. And we've tested it uh, on that IIC, the impact noise, which is just so pernicious. Yeah. Now, are those are those members for structural purposes or are they just for like a non-load bearing interior wall or for... They're to strap your ceiling. Just, strap, just strapping. Specialty they, strapping. They do need to go through all sorts of fire tests and shear strength and everything yeah. else. So. Yeah. yeah. And they're working through that. I've been very impressed at Alan's mm-hmm. testing. He's done a lot of testing in acoustical labs. And I think now Alan's realizing that sort of as you made the point earlier, you can test something in the lab, but does that translate to the field and the actual mm-hmm. installed product? Yeah. So let's say, let's take an example, I guess, because, you know, most people are doing standard residential two, three family constructions. So all, well, actually a backup. Is there a difference in code between like an, a gut renovation of an existing building and new construction from a sound standpoint? Well, so there are probably a variety of um, issues that relate to how far are you gutting. And if you completely gut, then a two-family residential code, I 
believe still has a lower STC rating requirement okay. than the sort of IBC. So that would be the IRC, which International Residential Code, as opposed to the International Building Code. And the International Building Code is what most multifamily projects above, I think it's three units. The, the code is the floor too. It's, it's yeah. worth yeah. keeping in mind that if you're really delivering yep. a high-end product, you don't want to just meet code. Correct. Yeah. So, so going back is, you know, standard three family new construction, you know, what are some of the ideal, easy, low hanging fruit that you can other, you know, other than obviously, you know, the standard insulation between the floors that, yeah, you, can, that although you can do. Let's maybe I'll deflect your question briefly okay. in That's that. Fine. So if we start with that IBC code, the international building code, yep. That has the STC 50 rating and an IIC 50 rating. And so that's sort of the entry level of what we need to do as developers baseline. and designers. Yeah, it's the very minimal baseline. And so that has been part of the code. And gosh, I I don't know the exact history of the IBC, but I want to say since the late 90s or early 2000s. So it's it's been around for a while. One of the things that we found, and again, touching back to the industry has changed, is that that worked reasonably well for most residences back when people were building sort of typical, maybe single pane windows that weren't that great. And, you know, we got by with that. Now that we're doing such a great job with our exteriors and meeting higher levels of isolation from outsides, that basically has turned the indoor environment into actually a recording studio, <laughs> sort of like what we're sitting in. And that indoor recording studio can be extremely quiet. And so even though you might have used to hear sound from an outside coming in, now we hear silence and you can hear the refrigerator. And that's why <laughs> now refrigerators and dishwashers are rated by how loud they are because people are getting so quiet in their residences, they actually care about it. But because we've done that, we actually make people more sensitive in their residences. And so with the lack of sound, that means that they're going to hear more of their neighbors. And so as we've kept that noise out, the code goal has actually not satisfied a lot of people. And so... The- so you're saying basically by just building these days you're 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 hitting that baseline you don't even have to do anything else no, or basically no, you, you, you can still fall level. short you can still fall short yeah okay. you can still fall short and so i guess i'm differentiating between the exterior wall construction that we're doing and the windows we're doing and the doors we're doing for the exterior versus the demising interior, interior partitions yeah exactly and with those we still are seeing designs that come along and don't even meet the minimum okay which is scary because at this point if you're not even meeting that on top of the fact we're doing such a good job keeping everything else out it's really abysmal as far as the experience that a resident would have and so yes if you can get to the code requirement and meet that first The concern we're seeing is that that's not what people are expecting. And especially in markets where the price to entry is so much higher, expectations are higher as a result. So what we've been happy to see is back in the late, I guess call it 2000 zeros, there was a committee that formed and basically they were part of the International Code Council and they developed a document that basically said, you can build a code. 
But if you want to go above, here are some voluntary guidelines for going above. And based on that, we would say that you should strive for 55 for market rate. And that's an STC and an IIC rating. And oh, by the way, let's put some field numbers to it that if you wanted to test it, you could feel comfortable that it's been tested and or it's been designed and installed to the level of quality that you were designing for. And so there's some field ratings that go with that. So I think that's an interesting distinction, this notion that there's an STC of 55, but then there's a field that has a corresponding number to the real world. So it's like 55 in a lab is one thing, but that might equate to what, 51? Yeah. So uh, the old code allowed you a five-point degradation Mm -hmm. because testing in a lab, you're basically testing a single product in a hole between two concrete chambers. These concrete chambers are isolated from the ground. So whatever noise is created in one side does not go through in any other way other than that one construction to the other side. So it's just perfect conditions. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. In a vacuum. (laughs) (laughs) Almost. Be hard for breathing. Exterior exterior (laughs) vacuum. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's why the STC ratings are great for designs because you can then say this one construction, when I put it into my design, should achieve this, provided I don't put a hole in it Mm -hmm. or for an outlet or something like that. But if I do put an outlet in, I can mitigate that with some putty pads and some things that are relatively common nowadays. Mm -hmm. But the problem is when we build in the field, we go back to that element of we support everything Uh, in the field off of something else. And so that's not how the lab was testing. And so now all of a sudden when we're building two units next to each other, there's an exterior wall that's going to probably join the two of those. There's a floor structure below. There's a ceiling structure above. And those common paths are going to be ways in which sound can go around the construction that we thought was a really great construction. And so that's why the field rating as long as you've done your design well, that field rating gives you a allowance that you can have the, the acoustical performance drop, but not to an extent that it's so bad that the field is much worse than what you were planning mm-hmm. in the design. In the, in the standard code, the IBC, that allowance for degradation is about five points of STC numbers. So if you're designing for a 50, you hope to get a 45. The fun part is that the test for performing those field tests actually allows three different ratings. Hmm. Which of the ratings are you comparing that to? It's really uncertain. So that five-point degradation, you could assign it to one of the ratings, but those ratings, some of the ratings aren't going to necessarily correct for whether the room is furnished or whether it's empty. So which of those ratings do you apply the five points to? So that's why this guideline actually says not only are you going to choose this rating which normalizes for a furnished room and so now we've taken away the confusion of which metric or which rating to consider but it also says it should be within three points of that 55 or if you're designing for preferred residences which i think all of us would say is luxury that's an STC of 60 or an IIC of 60. And again, we've got a three-point difference between the field or the lab and the field rating. So help point. us understand what a point means. It's sort of like when an engineer says, yeah. they need seven kips or no, this one will, this nine kips. It's like, we'll yeah. bring that down. Early. Like, let's go back to the sound of the dishwasher, Some right? Of, they yeah. do decibels. I think they people do. are most familiar with that. They are. And it's like an exponential every 
X number of decibels is exponentially more, right? Exactly. So it's a logarithmic like reverse for, ratio. Yeah. So the reason why we don't say STC decibels is that basically the STC rating looks at 21 different frequencies of sound, and it then compares those 21 frequencies and how loud it is in each of those frequencies to a single curve. And you move this curve up and down depending on how many times the frequencies exceed the curve. It's it's a laborious process. We've got great spreadsheets. If you mm-hmm. ever want to see them, I can Ooh. send them to you. Spreadsheets. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Isn't that fun? But the reason we don't then relate decibels to that STC rating is that it's really an awkward process to take all those 21 decibels and then relate it to something that really is not a decibel. It's just a point up and down of how you're rating the decibels. Mm -hmm. So that's where the distinction comes from. And it gets into the wonky nature of how all of us in the field love to distinguish this versus that. But one point is fairly meaningful now. Like, yeah, like it's in terms it's, of your perception. Yeah, like what's a sound? 50 versus a 55 versus yeah. a 60, right? Well, and the fun part is so in decibels, normally we would say that a three point change in decibels or a three decibel change most people would consider is just noticeable. It's something that if you're engrossed in an activity and doing something, you're not going to notice three decibel changes. However, if you're sitting still and trying to listen to something, you might notice smaller changes. And so a, a decibel change might be perceptible to somebody who's really focusing. Half a decibel change can be uh, noticed. That also just glosses over the fact that if you change the character of the sound, if you make something more hissy versus rumbly, that may change your perception of the sound, even though the decibel number hasn't changed. So, so one of those 21 frequencies, frequencies basically. Well, and the 21 frequencies are just the frequencies that we measure rate, um, architectural constructions on. Our human hearing is much broader than that. Mm. And so there's a whole bunch of different factors. But to take it back to your question about the SDC rating of and changes of one decibel, so you could actually have similar STC numbers. So let's say we do meet 50 with a construction. We could also meet 50 with another construction, and it could sound very different based on the character of the sound that's coming through. And so the STC rating is a great number for us to use as a discriminator to quickly have an idea of how something performs, but that's where we as consultants love to come in and actually see the data. Well, there's so many different variations. Exactly. That's the problem. Yep. And it's, I like to equate things back to light. Um, Sound and light have a lot of similarities and you could have something that is a certain brightness of light, but is it blue? Is it red? Mm -hmm. Is it white? And that's, that's the issue that we have with sound. You could have the same brightness, but it's got a much different character to it. And so that's where an STC rating of one number for two different constructions could sound very different. So what you're saying is you can't just go to Google and do like a decibel to STC like conversion? Uh, no, no, usually <laughs> not. <laughs> Google might help you try to do it. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I, what, if it's what, on the internet, it's got to be true. Yes. Exactly. But that's a digression. <laughs> Let's bring this to a more practical uh, place where, you know, you're a builder and you're trying to, there's, there's an unlimited amount of money you can spend on sound attenuation. And we know that there's no such thing as soundproof. There's only sound resistant. I always yep. like to remind people of that. But um, 
I think there's a lot of fairy dust on the market. People will sell you anything. And with that, let's do almost like a lightning round. I'm going to throw out some products, <laughs> some ideas. You tell us if it's worth your money, if it's truly effective. Um, the first one is green glue. This is a glue that you would put between two layers of drywall. Oh, I've seen this. And this is advertised as stopping sound. Yeah. So this is like cheaper silicone? <laughs> it's expensive. Well, I'm going to categorize it as a damping compound. Okay. And basically... It is analogous to a laminated window. Mm -hmm. And so we all drive in cars that have laminated glass to keep us in the car during an accident or keep things out of the car if it flies out the windshield. That laminated glass also provides great sound-reducing qualities in that the thin panes of glass that are laminated together by that damping compound actually vibrate in a way that when one side is experiencing sound it doesn't transmit that sound to the other side very effectively. And so you get a benefit of sound reduction. Products like that, uh, which are damping compounds, do the same thing for drywall. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a tried and true way to approach improving the performance of drywall. I guess the concern that we often have as consultants is you can get too focused on that type of performance and miss the the basic things. Uh -huh. And if you haven't done the decoupling, if you haven't done the sealant yeah. and all the other things, it doesn't matter if you've got damping compounds. So that's almost your extra credit. Like get, get on yeah. base first. Okay. Yep. I'll do a quick one. Yeah. The, um, like rubber roofing, but for your walls, like rubber. Mass loaded, mass loaded vinyl. vinyl. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. Mass loaded vinyl. Um, I guess I have to say that in most of the de development projects we work on, that is a cost that a lot of developers don't want to necessarily add because they haven't seen the value of it yet. I don't want to say it doesn't work. Uh, that I don't think is the right way to look at it. I think it works. And we often see that people consider it the cream or the icing on the cake. And if you want to go in and do everything you can, that would be one of the elements to put into your construction after you've done all the good things in addition. <laughs> so where I've used mass loaded vinyl on a PVC waste stack. Yep. Someone flushes a toilet three levels above you and you hear it, it can be annoying. Yep. And when water really, the, the problem is when it turns, if you have mm -hmm. a stack that just runs straight, it's not so bad, but when you make a left hand and a right hand and down problem. So we used mass loaded vinyl and we wrap that PVC stack you're actually wrapping this, this the PVC stack directly to it. Yeah. Okay. And, and well, I mean, you go cast And not doing like, like blowing or too. spray foam or anything. Well, there's like other that. things in the wall, certainly, but we're sure. wrapping that. Yeah. But, and uh, for mm -hmm. that wrap, usually it's a insulation, quilted insulation mm -hmm. on the inside against the pipe, and then the mass loaded goes on the outside of it. Yeah. I mean, cast iron is just quiet, more yep. quiet, but it is way more expensive. But anyway, really difficult. That's where I was getting at. We yeah. did this install, yeah. and the plumbers, no one liked it. It yep. was. I don't know. It was installed. I'm not sure it was installed right. Flex Seal but, needs to come out with yeah. uh, a product that's got insulating qualities. Yeah. They'll love that. That's a good one. So mask Just spray it on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Next one up, Quiet Rock. This is a, uh, to define it, it's a type of, gyp uh, type of drywall that's on the market, which is specifically for sound. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch of uh, companies out there making these laminated drywalls. Mm -hmm. And it's the version of green glue that's made in the factory. And so if we're talking about damping compounds, these um, products are being made in the factory, so you don't have to do it in the field. And rather than have a bunch of guys caulking damping mm -hmm. compound onto the drywall and putting up the next layer of drywall, this is done so it just arrives as a sheet of board. You put it up, you put screws through it, and it's done. I've Again, always heard it's worthless. 
I wouldn't say that. No. It's not worthless. I, I would just I, say that the times we've seen it, we've often seen other issues that haven't been addressed properly. And so similar to the damping compounds, it can work. It can be the icing on the cake to make things perform really well. But if you haven't done the basics, it's not going to solve the basic problems. It just seems like there's there's not just like there's not just one solution. It seems like there there's just a combination yeah. of products and installations that you need to do to achieve. It's not just one thing. Yep. And that's somewhat the case for what is the source you're trying to isolate, what right. is the construction you're using, what is the place where it's going to. All of that needs to be well-defined oftentimes before you can just say, this is the right acoustical product. And I think that is most commonly the issue that people get caught on is that they do a Google search on noise control or acoustics or something, and they come up with a firm that does do a product that's in that market, but not, might not be the right product for what they need. And so that's where I think oftentimes the value of a consultant like us is to differentiate between this is what you need and this is what is not going to help you much. Mm -hmm. And so one of the other cases that you might come up with is people often will think about isolation, but try to get a product that's actually sound absorbing to solve the problem. And when I was, I taught at the Boston Architectural College for a while. And one of the challenges I always wanted to address very early for the architects as they're learning was Let's differentiate the sound within a room, which is affected by the finishes and the absorption of those finishes, versus the sound transmission across a wall. And that is affected by what constructions you're selecting. But you don't select finishes for that construction because that's really not providing the isolation. The finishes are really for the sound within the room itself. Mm -hmm. And so if you can think about the location of the sound in the listener, being the same, that's that's a finish problem. And you should select things that absorb sound. If the sound and the listener are in two different spaces, let's look at barrier products and really just make sure that's clear. Totally understand that. Let's get like an example. So say you have a house and you've got a wall, nothing was put in between them. Obviously you could rip the wall down and rebuild it. You could do separated studs. You could do different kinds of um, strapping, but what would some, what's a realistic or an easy thing to do that can not eliminate the sound, but manage it better? Yeah. Um, do you just cut holes in the top of the ceiling and blow stuff in? What do you do to like easily, what's the easiest thing? Like, you're talking the about top like a easily? homeowner wants an For existing a homeowner, home. Or if you're in an apartment, not an apartment, you're in a condo and there's something above you, like what are some easy ways to kind of yeah. mitigate that sound? Or are there no easy ways? Because at the end of the day, like it's built and there's really nothing you can do besides rip it apart. Yeah. Yeah. And and I feel so much for people who again move into a situation that they didn't realize is a unacceptable situation. So I guess the order of ways to improve things are gonna be dependent on how much pain you want to go through oftentimes, <laughs> unfortunately. I mean, obviously most important is not in between your own unit and the walls. It's it's gonna be like what somebody else above you or below you is doing. So yeah, probably I, number one. Well, and maybe the best way to take a step back is to say, oftentimes in our industry, we like to think of the sort of three words that define this as source, path, receiver. 
And you'll often hear a consultant say, source path receiver. You know, we just have to solve it in that approach. And the idea behind that is look at the source. How can you quiet the source? If you can quiet the source at the beginning, that becomes a lot easier to not have to do other things to try to put mm -hmm. Band-Aids on it. The path tends to be where we as developers focus because we don't necessarily always have control over the source. Yeah. <laughs> so let's focus on the path and make sure that path is good. The receiver, I guess, in my mind over time has always been, okay, what do we do to make these people feel as though um, they're isolated in their space? But I had trouble in my architectural classes explaining that. So I actually like to take a step back and say, okay, rather than source path receiver, let's do loudness of the activity and intensity of the activity. Let's talk about the demising instruction and sound isolation it provides. And then the last two factors are actually how quiet is it, where the sound is coming into, and can we make it louder? <laughs> well, <laughs> distract yeah, them. to some extent, but also how sensitive is the person? And so if you can define those four elements, I, I like to say this, the loudness of the activity, you always like living in an apartment building next to the old couple, mm -hmm. the retired couple, they read the paper, crochet, they do well, quiet or if they're hard of hearing, they might turn the TV <laughs> off really loud. Bingo. <laughs> Bingo. You took away my fun. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, or, thinking of my grandparents. Or, or it works the other way around. Like they can't hear. So you can have the parties and make the noise. <laughs> <laughs> but that case, exactly as you describe it, they've done all these quiet activities all day until five o'clock. And then all of a sudden they turn on the news your privacy hasn't changed because the wall has changed. Your privacy has changed because the loudness changed. And so there's this great sense of I've got great privacy from my neighbors until the nightly news comes on. Yeah. And that has nothing to do with anything that the construction is doing. It's just the loudness has changed. <laughs> so that's one perspective. The other that we as designers focus on is what is that barrier and how do we isolate that? That I think goes back to the code discussion. It then goes back to these voluntary goals that you can do better. That's the big question mark we want to solve in the design. So we're not solving it after people are moved in. So that's where we want to put in the most effort. That third factor is where we were talking about earlier. The third factor, how quiet is it where the person's listening? That's the factor that we as an industry has changed because we're doing such a good job keeping noise out. And it's that factor being quieter that I often say is the reason we need to spend more time on the second factor and focusing on how do we make the isolation better? Because we've pushed the quietness so low that we actually have to compensate in one of the other factors. The last factor personal sensitivity. I'm never going to try to guesstimate that. <laughs> I'm but, crazy. I'm nuts. I'm constantly telling my wife, do you hear that? That is so, she's like, I don't hear anything. You're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. You know, we've done projects where, and this is a great example, like the bath fans have gotten so efficient and so mm -hmm. quiet yep. that people will say like, is it even working? And you're like, you know, it's on, it's just really quiet. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so in a way, and electric vehicles are a great parallel to this is that mm -hmm. you expect to hear the noise, but then you don't. Yeah. Yeah. And so now they're yeah. like, let's make artificial noises. So yeah. it's like, now we're making noises. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. almost need like an artificial noise creator to yep. 
like you said, not have such a big disparity between. It's like the white noise machines that right. the kids use now to fall asleep. It is. The kids, yeah, I have the one kids. in my room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm crazy. Seriously, I, I sleep with one all the time yeah. because otherwise you do hear everything and mm-hmm. anything going on and it interrupts you, distracts you. That's part of the reason why we put uh, sound masking systems in office spaces so people can stay focused and not be distracted by everything. Those two last factors can be big wild cards in how people perceive sound. None of those, those two factors are not in the code. Yeah. And we don't have control over them. So that's the hardest part why the code focusing on just the second factor, we really need to go beyond the code because Mm. we're compensating for other issues that otherwise are making it harder to make people feel. It seems like a massive challenge though, because every single person is different. And they, yeah. it, they so, be. so yep. it's like going back, I think to the beginning of the episode where you said, you know, the goal is to kind of just, you know, build it in such a way that it hits the masses. Yep. There's always going to be outliers. Right. That's something I say a lot. And I'm curious if this is true. I say sound is a weak link, a weak link problem, like a chain, a chain of paper clips. And the problem is that you can do a lot of things right, but if you have one weak uh, paperclip in that chain, it's sort of all for naught. So I can armor. design an exterior wall incredibly well and then cheap out on my sliding glass door. And now what was it all for? Yeah. yeah. I actually enjoy hearing cars go by. I peek out the yeah. windows. You know, so I like the noise. You know? no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Having a little bit of background sounds not an issue, but you're right. Sound being logarithmic can be um, degraded as far as the isolation goes very quickly by a small hole or mm-hmm. a small failure. Yeah. And so, yes. Recess lights. Uh, lights. Six gangs of switches. On the wall. Mm, we all yeah, do it. all those things. Yeah. There's so many things you don't think about. Just an HVAC register supply. Yeah, and I guess one of the things when I think about the six switches and a wall, usually that's next to the door. The mm. door isn't much better either. Yeah. And so that door is a big weakness, even mm. though it's intended to keep airflow out in most mm. cases. But that often can be part of the problem with a wall construction that um, you don't need to over design a wall construction mm. if you're going to put a big hole in it that we close every so often coming up on time. One, yeah. one other thing that I thought was counterintuitive, but interesting that uh, you had taught me was the notion of uh, spacing of structural members, 16 inches on center versus 24 inches yeah. on center. Yeah. Tell us how that affects uh, sound transmission. Yeah. And so quite frankly, a lot of contractors and a lot of people think that building something stiffer, stronger is going to be better acoustically. And that actually goes in the wrong direction. So the floppier a wall is, the less that sound is going to transmit through it because floppiness actually allows the sound energy to convert into kinetic energy. Mm. Motion is actually the way in which sound can be dissipated into the construction. The stiffer you make it, the less it moves. And so that sound can keep traveling through. So when you talk about studs or joists or trusses, the wider you can space them apart, the more that the construction isn't going to have the connection between one side and the other and allow some movement of that structure to dissipate the sound. And the less lumber you have to pay for. (laughs) Same goes for uh, insulation and ceilings, no? The the idea of like dense pack and six lifts of uh, fiberglass insulation within a uh, joist bay is not necessarily better than one lift with an air gap. Yeah. Because air is an interesting insulator too. 
Yeah, air can be good. There's there's a point at which if you're cramming insulation into a cavity, you're actually allowing that insulation to be the path through which sound is traveling. So having that air gap is helpful. You're letting the sound insulation be absorptive as opposed to a transmission path. So yeah, it, it's key to allow some of that uh, cavity to do some of the work you want to do for isolation rather than just have it stuffed so tight. Mm-hmm. It actually allows transmission. I think the key yeah. that I've learned is just separation and the fewest amount of connection points. Yeah. Obviously without sacrificing holding non-structural uh, structural and, walls, yeah. non-bearing walls down three quarters inch from the underside of the uh, joists or trusses. Yeah. Yeah. You and know. the thing that always frustrates me so much is sealant. Sealant, sealant is really? so important. If you really? don't get Where? good sealant at the bottom of walls. Tops so, of walls or bottoms? Or both? Well, usually your bottom is intersecting with the drywall. Uh-huh. So, or sorry, your top is uh, the drywall of the wall and the drywall of the ceiling seals uh-huh. it up very well. But yeah. at the floor, if you're not doing gypcrete, you have to watch out that that floor is well sealed between the drywall and the floor structure itself. It was uh, amazing one time you go and I got brought into a project where there was sound transmission between two residences and you could walk over the wall and point at the floor. I see light coming through it. Yeah, it actually, I don't know that we did. Um, Oftentimes the path is actually coming up and over Mm -hmm. uh, the bottom track of the stud. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure light is necessarily traveling, but um, yeah, airflow can go commonly. And that's part of... One of the ways in which green construction and all the compartmentalization of green construction actually helps acoustics. Fire ratings are helping acoustics because all those things are trying to seal and separate spaces better. And in the process, that helps reduce sound transmission. Should we jump into a quick game of overrated, underrated, appropriate, really, right? Yeah. (laughs) I I wasted some of my bullets there on the uh, lightning round. I have a couple. Let's do it. All right. Kick it off. In ceiling. Uh, We need to explain the rules. Do Do you know the game? Uh, is it a game? We'll throw out a concept. <laughs> we find it a game for us. Tell us if you think it's overrated, <laughs> underrated, or appropriately rated. Yes. All right. I'll go first. In ceiling or in wall speakers? Oh, gosh. Well, they are very effective. I, I was going to say they are underrated for how they could make a room sound. You could like the sound very much. They could be overrated as to how much they are isolated from your neighbors. Yeah. And you can end up with some significant transmission. Yeah. And your neighbors might like your speakers a lot less than you do. <laughs> are you way better off putting that speaker in a multifamily application in the wall than the ceiling? Because it's, or am I deluding myself by thinking that that's. I think in both cases, you're having to put a good backing and housing behind yeah. it to make sure that you're not sending sound into the cavity. Mm-hmm. You're sending the sound into your residence right. and not oh, oh, there's, the cavity. That's also going to come down to the speaker themselves. Well, too. some of the yeah. some of the more expensive speakers, you they come with a backing. Well, yeah. You can buy a back box cheap enough. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, yeah. it's like mass loaded vinyl. But exactly. Like no, I was going to say. Do, yeah. yeah. So the product is T-stud, but it's a uh, like an insulated kind of, it, it has a thermal, the main benefit is thermal, but also I'm, I'm seeing sound as well. Yeah. Have yeah. you seen those? I love the looks of it. I haven't seen it installed yet, but it looks fascinating. And I love the way the dowels sort of hold it together. And yeah, I, I, I can't wait to see it actually installed and be able to 
I feel like I've seen it for years and I'm just like, I, re- I kind of really want to try this. So <laughs> yeah. maybe one day. You've brought yeah. it up on previous episodes. I have, I have. I don't know why I'm such a cheerleader. I, I don't get compensated for them. I'll <laughs> see if we can get them as an affiliate or something. Trying to make it a thing. All right, I have a magnesium board. This is a replacement instead of using um, dry guard or some sort of typical floor sheathing. This is a, a board that's almost made of uh, gypcrete and uh, yeah. weighs a lot. And does it work? Is it overrated? Well, again, it falls into the category of we're seeing a lot of it being thought of for a lot of projects. We're I haven't seen a lot of it actually installed yet. So a lot of people are talking about it. A lot of people want to use it, but we're not seeing a ton of examples where it's actually in place and performing or not performing. I suspect it should be able to perform well and because it does have a lot of density to it. Um, Aren't there spaces at each joint, though? Well, and that's the issue. It still has to be well sealed. And so you still need a product that doesn't let sound go around it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I think there are still practical issues that, again, I haven't seen in the field Mm -hmm. um, performing yet. But I think it can be a good product. It, It still has to be treated well and all the basics have to be handled. How about just standard Rockwell insulation? Fantastic. It's it's a great absorber, and uh, whether it's rock wool, which is also very fireproof, sound-absorbing fire bats uh, are excellent. There are great fiberglass products, too, but that's been the tried-and-true approach. So under, underrated. Does Roxel yeah, outperform fiberglass? Yeah. Roxel um, Safe and Sound is a premium to fiberglass in terms of cost, but I've heard that they perform almost identically, yeah. whether that's true or not. I got to say, I can pull up different data sources that'll show one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say as long as you're filling the cavity to a similar extent with a similar density product, you should see similar performance. Oftentimes, you might see variations of a couple decibels here and there. The fiberglass is so much less dense than rock salt, and, but I had heard that it acts like a spring because it allows yeah. air. And- yeah, and there are versions of thermal fiberglass that aren't as dense as the sound fiberglass, mm-hmm. so you do have to watch out what you're selecting. But okay. um, yeah, I, rock wool, thermofiber, those types of mineral wool products are very effective and do perform well. I guess most of the time we think of that as, again, icing on the cake. If you're doing everything else right, this is the way to make sure you've done the best. There are a bunch of fiberglass products that are actually performing very well also. I like so. their little demos that they do at the builder shows. Yeah, I do too. You walk <laughs> through this like cave of raw, of safe and sound. Oh, I was going to say like, the torch that they put against. Oh, well, that too. <laughs> but they have these like... It's, maze. It's almost, yeah, it's like yeah. a little maze you walk through. You could like hear yourself breathing. It's so quiet. It's like... Yeah. yeah. The spray foam insulation guys do that too. They create their cone of silence that you can walk into like this little phone booth type thing. And cool. it's very absorptive. And that's what very absorptive uh, spaces sound like. So yeah, yeah it, it can be absorptive. Yeah. A little gimmicky because you're not leaving your walls open and just walking around with rock wall everywhere. I'll just go to like a more traditional hardwood floor underlayment, like a basic underlayment. Are those even useful? Underrated, overrated? They, well, like a cork underlayment? Most There's of- many different products. So I'm just going to say like builder grade, entry level home type underlayment, not the paper. Not ro- the paper's not awesome. paper. The okay. step above the yeah. paper. Yeah. The rosin paper is not an effective or useful product. Let's, <laughs> let's make that clear yeah. right here. Maybe you could start the episode with that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the I guess I'm going to say overrated. And the reason I say that 
for underlayments is most of the time underlayments are tested on a concrete slab. And the problem is many of the times these get installed on wood structures. And so oftentimes the ratings that you see on those products are very high, not only because they're installed in a test that has a concrete slab, oftentimes they have a ceiling below, so a drywall ceiling below that concrete slab. It's fantastic. It's up in the 70s. You take that same product and put it on a wood structure and you're probably down in the 50s and hopefully you're making code. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I would say overrated mainly because many people don't look at the construction that it's been tested on and compare it to the construction they're actually building. So that's almost like an advertising thing. So they can just slap some high number on there and little asterisk. So when used in this very specific way, perfect. Yeah. I mean, that, that is typical of all UL ratings. Yeah. <laughs> in a nutshell. All right, my last one, uh, two layers of drywall. Two layers of drywall. Half inch or five-eighths. Say, say double five-eighths. Well, double, double t- yeah, five-eighths is what we use. I, I laugh that you raised that question about the thickness because um, one of my first examples of learning why thickness was important was I actually had a family uh, member who was installing a better ceiling and I recommended five-eighths drywall for the ceiling that they were going to install. And they had their friend who was the contractor they've used for years upon years, and he works by himself. And so here I am recommending five-eighths drywall. Yeah. And he said, why the heck are you having me put up five-eighths? You know how heavy that is? Yeah. <laughs> and so from then on, I, I sort of realized, yeah, someone actually has to handle this. Yeah. If, if it's not a big job, yeah. it might be an individual. So yes, you want to go for the heaviest you can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Two layers is good. It's the sort of, again, brute force math mass method. Oftentimes, if you're, yeah, I, I would say it's, let's see, overrated, underrated. Let's call it underrated or overpriced is how uh, most people would look at it. It only, it only gives you like one STC point, right? Like if you, if you have depends. an acoustical problem and you say like, Ray, go put one more layer of drywall on the ceiling. It depends. Yeah. It depends. In in the proper application, ideally, you might get three to four points improvement. Uh-huh. But if it's installed in a way in which that mass doesn't help it, then yeah, it might be rather limited. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's often, again, the simplest way to get more performance out of a construction, particularly when you're designing it. After the fact... I guess after the fact, it's rare that I would say to someone, put up one more layer and you'll be happy because most of the people who are bothered by something that's been constructed aren't bothered by a three to four point difference or even a one point difference. They're bothered by a 10 point difference. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes when we're trying to solve something that's already been built, we're looking at how can we get five to seven to 10 points of improvement because that one layer drywall isn't going to get you there. So cool. Um, so maybe overrated in okay. that case. All right. I'm trying to think. I have any more? I think I'm good. <laughs> I don't. I don't think I have any more. Ray, close this out. The only thing I can think of is maybe like a gut renovation. So you you strip a you know a traditional triple decker down to the, to the studs everywhere, and the subfloor is like the old boards, and so you yeah. slap a layer of subfloor on there. Well, what if you just do two layers of subfloor? Kind of like the two layers of drywall. Oh, maybe you, it. Two layers of subfloor with a mat in between or two layers sandwiched on top of each other. Maybe just doubling up the subfloor rather than going through for like a thicker subfloor. Yep. Is there any benefit there? So we've done this. Typically when you're doing that, you're you stiffening have. the floor. 
more effectively than just having that single layer. So that usually is very good. And then you still need to put something between that subfloor and the hard floor above if you're doing a hard floor. Maybe the underlayment? Yeah. And underlayment. Yeah, so that actually does help. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. Better so than can... underlayment under the hardwood. Well, I guess I'm Unless thinking it's another of... added layer. Yeah. I, I guess I was thinking of those two layers of subfloor going together, underlayment on top, hard floor on top of that. Got it. We did a layer of underlayment between the two layers of plywood yep. once. And there's actually a, at least one product out there that's mm. providing that as a delivered to the site product. Wow. And so they've got, again, another alternative mm. to doing gypsum yeah. concrete. And it does kill your schedule. Empty out the whole building. No one can walk in there. Mm-hmm. It's tough. We've done That's it. a day for day delay. Yeah. yeah. A couple days. I mean, do it on a Friday, let it cure Not on, on a, a big, Saturday, big job. Sunday. But, no, but yeah. 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 Anyway. So again, you guys are right in the middle of the debate that <laughs> we're seeing with a lot of our clients. Yeah. So clearly there's more than one way to achieve yeah. the sound transmission controls yeah. and and standards. So, end of the day, folks are confused and need to find some yeah. professional help with this. How, how can they find you? So there's a wonderful organization of national consultants, mm-hmm. and it's called the National Council of Acoustical Consultants, ncac.com. Mm-hmm. And they have a directory right on the website. You can select by state and find all the consultants in your local area. And, and if they're in Boston and they need Intech's help, we're right here. Intech.com. Intertech.com. Intertech. Although... We're a company that is 46,000 people. So finding me is a little tough, but <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, they, they can find us either through the NCAC website or Googling my name. Wonderful. Awesome. Thank you so much. This has been super informative. Yeah, this is great. I, I love what you guys are doing. So this is fun. Awesome. Okay, thanks everybody for listening, rating, reviewing, giving ideas, feedback. And sharing the podcast. Yep. And hopefully some five-star reviews on there. Keep it going. This episode is sponsored by First Boston Capital. If you are in the market for a loan, reach out to any of us. We could put you in touch. They provide great rates, great terms. Quick closes. Also bridge loans. If you need to take down a property fast. Quickly. Um, These guys are great to work with and uh, highly recommend. Absolutely. Cheers. Cheers.